Listener Production. Hello, my name is Mim Rizvi and I'm one third of another listener podcast, a podcast for kids, the Beanies. And while singing and dancing is my usual game, I'm taking a break today because your usual weekend briefing host and my sister, Jamila Rizvi, has been struck down with COVID. She gave a valiant effort and outran the dreaded Lurgy for an admirably long time, but sadly, she has run out of luck. But me... I'm in luck because today's episode of The Weekend Briefing is an interview with the incredible Art Simone, fan favourite on RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under. And while Jamila may be a drag race fan, I am a super fan and I leave her fandom eating my sparkly glitter dust. Jamila and Art cover all the good stuff in their chat. Everything from Art's early forays into drag to her shock elimination and return from Drag Race Down Under. They also dive into what it is about Aussie drag that sets this country apart. My name is Mim Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, The Weekend List, where Bron and I recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here's Jamila Rizvi and Art Simone. My friend, normally I start with welcoming you to The Weekend Briefing, But I want to start with a different question on this occasion. What proportion of your mates, your neighbours, your family, your colleagues call you art and what proportion still call you Jack? That is a really good question. Um, I think proportionately it's probably like 75% of people call me art um, and 25 Jack. Um, It usually comes down to how I've met someone. So over the last 10 years, I've really only been meeting people in drag or through drag work. So they know me as art. So it's really only my family and some very close friends that uh, call me Jack or some that alternate between the two because they're very respectful. So if I look extra glamorous, I'm art. Or if I look (laughs) like I've just woken up like I do today, then they go, oh, Jack's here. All right. (laughs) Got it. All right. Well, we are new acquaintances. So I'm going to start by saying, Art Simone, welcome to the Weekend Briefing. Oh, thank you for having me here on your beautiful weekend of the briefing. Yes. (laughs) Thanks for being here. I am a massive Drag Race fan, as the listeners of this podcast know, and I'm a massive drag fan more generally. So it is genuinely an honour to have you on the podcast. I have been deep diving slash stalking you for the most of this week. And one thing I've learned is that you were a really smart kid, right? You were pursuing a bunch of maths and science subjects at high school, Tell me about the revelation you had that a career as a scientist wasn't for you. Yeah, so um, I was a very smart kid, you know, straight A's. I was school captain and ducks and music captain and uh, debating captain and form leader and pack leader. And I was just an overachiever. I loved school. Um, But... uh, I, I always grew up with my mum giving me a little bit of a pressure being like, all right, you're the smart one, so it's all on you, okay? I've finally I've raised one that is smart, so <laughs> it's all on you. Um, so I was all maths and science and all very academic subjects. But just before I started year 12, I went to the National Youth Science Forum, which is like uh, basically a big nerdy summer camp. And it was in Perth. So it was like, you know, you got to live on campus at a university for a couple of weeks. You got to do full practical experience in the workplace and all these different areas of science, which is really, really good. Um, But I walked into like labs every day and I was like, this is 
horrendous. I can't do this. Um, It was just so sterile and white and like, like too clean and crisp. And it just literally made me feel sick. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. Um, And I can still like hear the, the ringing of the fluorescent light bulbs inside the the labs. And I was like, so on the side, I'd kind of been exploring makeup and drag and performance and art. And it was always like, treated as a hobby because I couldn't study it at school. Yeah. Um, so me being a smart little person, when I got to year 12, I went straight to the art teacher and I was like, all right, so um, I really want to drop out of chemistry, but I don't want to do it if I'm actually not actually good because, you know, I don't want to waste anyone's time. So I showed her my work and she's like, oh my God, I have to have you. I have to have you. And I was like, okay, so um, can you write a letter to my mum that says I'm good so she believes me? Um, <laughs> so this lovely teacher, her name is Miss Holmes. I'm still in touch with her to this day. She wrote a letter to my mum. I sat down with my mum and I was like, mum, I really want to do art. I really want to do art. See, the teacher said I'm good. And, you know, a few conversations later, she reluctantly let me do that. And it was the best decision I ever made because from then on it was colour and mess and craziness and theatrics and and everything fun in the world. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I went from that to the complete polar opposite. Yeah, right, because it's like it's not actually the most uncommon conversation for kids to have to have, right, because a lot of kids who are artistic at some point have to break it to parents who expected something different, that that's what they want to pursue. And I think a lot of parents aren't necessarily anti-art or anti-the arts in any way. It's just that it's seen as a career that is potentially unstable or insecure. We've just come out of two years being locked at home where artists, particularly performing artists, haven't had the best run. What's the pandemic been like for you? Yeah, the last couple of years um, has been very, very tough for me and all of my creative peers. It's been very heartbreaking over the last couple of years to see people's livelihoods ripped away from them. Being an artist, full stop, is already a difficult career. It's already a very tough choice you make and you have to be very clever with how you uh, bring money in because sometimes, um, you know, we don't do art because we want to make money. We do it because we have to and because we love to do it. And when your avenue of being able to express yourself is taken away, especially for live performers, it was a really tough thing, you know, and and we can say on the flip side where it was so lovely and wonderful seeing everyone like adapt their entire career and doing zoom events and doing live streams, which is great and all, but it's just so horrendous that we had to do that. It's not the same. Like we're all putting on this smiley face being like, yeah, please come to my online zoom bingo. It's going to be the best ever. And then like, we'd have conversations with each other being like, this is the most embarrassing thing in the world. And it's, I actually think it's really hard. Uh, I'm not a performer, but I get a lot of speeches online and it's really hard to get energy when you can't see anyone and you're getting nothing back. Like how do you be funny when you can't hear anyone laugh? Literally, you can tell as many jokes as you want and all you can see is like a thumbs up emoji or like a little clapping thing. And it's just, what is going on? It's so alienating. As people who are used to being with live audiences, you use the audience as a barometer for how you're doing and what they're enjoying and what's, what you know, the vibe's coming back. You also use it as your own energy intake to feed yourself to give more back. But when you're just talking to a screen and, you know, half the time these people didn't even want to turn their cameras on, so you're just looking at, like, a number, it was really, really hard. 
That being said, it was great for training people for live television crosses. I'm so confident we're doing something like that now. Oh, I'll talk to a blank camera and pretend everyone loves me. (laughs) (laughs) Easy. So good at it now. Talk to me about where this love of art and an interest in art became a gateway, I suppose, for drag culture for you. How did that transition happen? Yeah, I think for me, um, I was really into makeup. That was kind of the main thing. I love makeup, you know, as a lot of teenagers are. I wasn't, I didn't like who I was as a teenager. I wasn't happy with the skin I was in. I was really struggling with finding myself and finding where I fit in. And I found that by transforming myself and becoming different characters and different people and different genders and an alien or a zombie, it was a great form of escapism, but also a way to explore and discover who I wanted to be or um, who I could be. So that was kind of the main thing. And then what I was doing is I'd like take self-portraits. So I'd, I'd document what I was doing. I've got a portrait of every single makeup I've ever done of myself wow. my entire life. I've got every single one of them documented. So I was doing these self-portraits and then working on how to put them together. And that's where the art came in where I was like, oh, okay, I could display them like this or I could tell a story like this. Um, but it always came back to self-portraits and and self-reflection and all of that. And so then that's where the drag kind of came in. I was originally just doing like scary things because that was my excuse to let my mum know that I wanted makeup. I was like, I'm going to do a zombie. Um, I really need this uh, smoky black liner for a zombie that I'm doing. (laughs) You know, there's only so many like scary things you can do. But then I discovered the world of drag where it was like lipstick and lashes and glitter and like wigs and, and costumes. And, you know, they all kind of adapted and grew together until I left high school. And then that's when I kind of moved straight into drag full time. Listening to you talk now, there doesn't sound like there was any point of hesitancy where, I mean, there must have been external pressures on you that said you weren't supposed to be doing this, right? That blokes aren't supposed to be, I'm clearly using inverted commas, folks, aren't supposed to be in a dress (laughs) and wearing makeup and having a great time. But surely that pressure was there around you. Were you someone that was able to block it out or did you just not care? I was quite stubborn, but the main pressures that were coming from me were never from someone being like, that's wrong. You can't do that. That's really bad. Um, The pressures were more from people being like, now be careful. Like someone might think this of you or someone might do, they they were worried on my behalf. And that was extremely frustrating. It's like, can you just let me like live? Because you're clearly okay with it. You're clearly supportive, but you're like, worrying on my behalf. Just, you know, let me get out there and do it. But yeah, I was quite stubborn. (laughs) I was like, this is what I have to do and I'm going to do it. It's going to be so good and you're going to love it. (laughs) Do you think of yourself and art as separate personas or is, are they blended in your own mind? They're very much blended. It's, um, the, I think the only difference is just the visuals, like, and, yeah. and how I present. Um, but the person inside, exactly the same. Um, art's just a bit louder and um, can be a little bit sassier and, you know, um, but it's all, it's all me. It's all me. Um, there's some drag performers and entertainers that have a very strong line yeah. and they're very, very character driven and you'll meet them and they are completely different in and out of their personas. But for me, I'm the same. It, it's just, yeah, one wears a lot of makeup and the other one looks a bit tired and has blue hair. So, <laughs> <laughs> What's that like when you're in a relationship or at least the early stages of a relationship when you're getting to know someone and there's this sense of blended personas? Has that ever been 
difficult for you or has it always been simple because um, you you see yourself as one character, one person? It's very simple in my eyes, but um, it has been an issue for a lot of people previously because they think they overthink it too much and they go, well, I'm not into art. I'm into Jack. I like Jack, but I don't want anyone to think that I'm into you when you're dressed like that. I'm like, oh my God, just don't overthink it. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Just chill. But I, I get it. I get it. Um, so it takes a special person to be able to see through the makeup, if you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah. And understand that it's just exactly the same person, just they're wearing their uniform for work. Yeah. I get the flip side of the people who are really into art, Simone. Too a bit into too it. much, if you ask me. <laughs> and then, like, aren't into me out of drag at all. I'm like, oh, well, that's probably a bit of a problem. Not for me, yeah, thank you. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. What distinguishes a good drag queen from a great one? I think it comes down to the motivations of why you do drag. I don't care if you look awful. I don't care if you can't dance. I don't care if you don't have much money, but if you go on stage and have the right intentions and the right motivations and the reason you do drag is something that I gel with, that's what makes a great drag queen to me. Uh, I started doing drag very self-indulgently because, you know, I was discovering who I was and I had a lot of emotions to, you know, to put out into the world. So a lot of my drag was very self-indulgent and I quickly learned that it wasn't about me. It was about the people in the room. It was about entertaining those people, giving them a, a sense of escapism. A lot of the venues I perform in, they're safe spaces for queer people that may not feel comfortable in their everyday lives or they go there to find like-minded people. So, you know, the biggest thing I do is I walk into a room and it's not about making me feel good. It's about finding the smallest person in the room and making them feel like the biggest person there. So that's what I really gel with and and the drag entertainers that I think are really great. I think that is a beautiful description, the idea of making someone feel bigger who is in that audience and seeing your audience as a whole lot of individuals, not a single group. The way you just spoke, though, is quite political, right? Do you think drag can ever be divorced from politics? I mean, drag in itself is a political statement and I don't think we can ever shy away from that. I I don't think it can ever be divorced. Um, I am very, (laughs) uh, to a degree, I I like to step away from all of that side of things because I'm a people pleaser. I'm like, I don't want anyone to be offended. You know, I'm just here to be the clown and make people laugh. Bye. Um, (laughs) But, you know, there are certain times where we've had to step in and drag queens have such big voices and are such figureheads for the community that, um, you know, there are certain times when it's time to step up and and make a statement and lead as well. I don't think drag could ever be divorced away from that. I want to ask you about Drag Race Down Under season one. But before that, I want to know what it is about Australian drag that kind of sets it apart from the rest of the world. Other than the accents, how do you know you're watching an Australian drag queen? Um, a big telltale sign that you're watching Australian drag queen, especially in a performance, is that we perform. We don't have a tipping culture here in Australia. Yeah. Um, so we perform from the minute we step out from till like the end of the three and a half minutes of our number. But you go other places in the world and they have such a tipping culture that they walk out and they just walk around and grab money for like three minutes. They're like, oh, thank you. Thank oh, you. Right. Thank you. It's so weird. It's so weird. I just got back from the States and um, I was able to do a guest spot and I had to perform and people were like trying to hand me money while I was, I'm like, stop <laughs> doing this. I'm 
trying to perform. It's very distracting. I've got a very important costume reveal coming up. And that's when you can always spot like uh, someone from overseas performing in Australia because they just look lost. They're waiting for the cash. Or they just like grab people's hands and go, oh, lovely, thank you. Um, so I think our performance styles are very different. We're, we're very based in humour. We're very ochre. We're very, you know, a thousand swear words come out a minute. I think people tend to think we're rude, but um, our sense of love with one another is like making fun of each other and taking the piss. And then I think aesthetically as well, although drag, and thanks to Drag Race, Drag across the world has very much amalgamated into very similar aesthetics across the place. But I think Australia still has cemented itself as being um, still very Priscilla-esque in that we're large, we're colourful, we're glittery, we're a lot more campier, our references are a lot more campier. And I think too, like we can be a little bit more rougher around the edges. Drag Race Season 1, Drag Race Down Under Season 1, ended up getting a huge amount of attention, good and bad, right? And I know that to be true because my Australian Indian father, who is not remotely interested in drag culture, despite his drag race obsessed daughters, he was asking questions, which means there was definitely, you know, it was hitting the zeitgeist in a big way, right? How do you reflect on season one now when you look back? Yeah, I think I'm in a much better place about it now. Mm. I think if you'd asked me this straight after it aired, I would have like said it was the worst thing I've ever done and I wish I'd never done it because it was being aired while we were in lockdown for most of it. So all we could do was watch the episode and then watch our telephones and watch like angry teenagers from a foreign country that don't understand any of our references tell us we're awful. And like you you can read that just gets like, bleeds into your brain and you think like that's all the world thinks of you it was really 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 awful because we didn't have kind of have that that touchstone of a a live audience or our friends to be like oh no people are enjoying it fast forward to now and I just got back from RuPaul's DragCon and I was meeting and I did a UK tour just a couple of weeks before that and it's been so wonderful to touch base with all these people that absolutely loved it and said it was the best ever. And yeah. they would like, they like how uh, different it was from the usual franchise um, themes and and the way we act and perform and our references. I remember one person came up to me like, I'd never even heard of Kath and Kim and now I'm obsessed <laughs> with it thanks to you, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, I'm changing them one at a time. Beautiful. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad and I'm really proud of what we did. We filmed it during the pandemic. We had to go to New Zealand. We were quarantined for like 21 days because it got extended. And then we filmed it all in like super fast in two weeks and then shipped home and then it started airing basically. And I'm really proud of what we did. I think comparatively, if you look at some of the the actual like class of drag we presented um, comparative to other seasons, our stuff was amazing. It was. And, and I'm super proud of everyone um, that, that did it. You were famously sent home quite early on and then just showed up again the next episode. And the franchise didn't really give an explanation for that. And then suddenly you're in this position where the whole country, if not the whole world's talking about that. And you're part of a controversy that you didn't make, if you know what I mean? Like you didn't make the choice. That must've felt really unfair. Oh, it was awful. They did explain. They just didn't like explain it well enough. Like in the, ep- all I know is exactly what Rue said in the episode, which was like, we, we wanted to see more from you. We think you're really great. Yeah. Um, you, were too, you were too good. Enough. You were too good. Yeah. You weren't allowed to go. <laughs> um, but no, it was really tough because 
all the questions just went straight to me. And it was like, I didn't make this decision. I got offered to come back. They asked me to come back. And I said, yes, of course I did. I'm in a foreign country. And it, like, it was like, I'd already filmed two episodes. I've got a suitcase full of great drag I want to show off. <laughs> of course I'm going to come back and do it. And I didn't know the grander scheme of it when mm. I said yes as well, because you're not allowed to ask questions. Mm. I actually thought when I was coming back, that the other girls would be there as well. And I like I didn't believe that I was coming back. I thought maybe something would be happening. But yeah. next minute I'm thrown into a bin and then <laughs> wheeled out. <laughs> and then um, they're whispering through the bin backstage, when RuPaul says trash, that's when you jump out. I was like, okay. One man's treasure is another queen's trash. Did someone say trash? Oh, oh my God. And then next minute I'm jumping out and then then off we go. So it was really hard. Um, yeah. It's like the most asked question I get and people hold so much negative feelings towards me over something that wasn't my decision, um, you know. But look, I'm kind of grateful in a weird way because it's a memorable moment. So, so. Sure is. <laughs> At least I'm known for something, whether it's... <laughs> And it was, I think it was a weird moment, I think, because there were so many fans who could see how good you were as well. And so I think it was a strange mix of the fans wanting you to come back because they did want to see more, but, again, being frustrated with the explanation. I think if they'd come up with a cute explanation, everyone would have been like, great, good. I'm so glad. Good call, guys. It would have taken like a 15-second statement where they could have been like, this happened and that's why they're back. And then none of this would have, none of this scandal would have happened. But unfortunately I didn't get that, but that's true. I got like tagged in so many things being like, oh, I'm so glad Art Simone came back, but I hate the way it's happened. Yeah. And it's like, well. Fair enough. Yeah, I had to leave it. So deal with it. <laughs> so tell me about post Drag Race life, because as you said, you, this is a show that aired during the pandemic, that you filmed during the pandemic. You, you sort of don't have the same opportunities to kind of, get the mileage out of a being part of a show like that when it is in those circumstances. So how has your work and career changed post drag race? It was really tough. And there was like a general feeling amongst the whole cast about, you know, we thought this was like, this is it, we've made it. And then it was all shut down because, you know, it aired. And then by the time we were finally out of lockdown, 12 other seasons of Drag Race have been out. We're like, oh, okay. But that being said, since the new year, it's been really great. Like there's a lot more opportunities for me. I've been touring the UK. I've done the US. Brands want to work with me a lot more. There's a lot more television opportunities. So it's just taken a bit longer for that to kick off again. But I'm also grateful that the second season isn't on the same schedule that we were. They have it because we were already airing this time last year. So, yeah. so I've still got a couple of extra months up my sleeve to <laughs> enjoy it before the next group come along. But it's definitely helped a lot. Well, I am so glad you're enjoying it. I'm glad the world is getting to enjoy your drag and hang with us, everyone, because we're going to tell you in just a moment how you can see Art Simone on stage here in Australia as part of a national drag tour with etc. etc. Art, thank you so much for being with me. Oh, thank you so much for having me on this beautiful weekend. <laughs> it's such a pleasure. And that's it for my sister Jamila's conversation with the fabulous Art Simone. Art is teaming up with fellow Aussie queen and fan favourite etc etc for a national drag tour, As Seen on TV. For more info on tickets, head to asseenontvtour.com. 
Don't go anywhere because Bron is jumping into the studio for the weekend list. Welcome to the weekend list where we recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. While Jamila recommends hydrolyte tissues and woolen blankets, Bron has joined me with some recommendations that might be a little more fun. This one is definitely a bit more fun than that one. I hope you're feeling better soon, Jamila. Um, This first recommendation is the Netflix documentary about Jennifer Lopez called Halftime. So it documents the lead up to the J-Lo performance at the Super Bowl halftime show where she teamed up with Shakira a few years ago. It's really fascinating. She's outspoken in the documentary about how she wanted it to be a solo performance, but she was asked to co-headline with Shakira. It's it's an amazing production. And a person in the documentary states, you know, it's an insult to people that they needed two Latina women to do the job typically done by one person. It also goes into her life a little bit, how she was a reason Google Images was invented. The whole thing's just amazing. Yes. And it, it's all packed into an hour and a half, which I love a reasonably length film, which I've mentioned a few times on this show. It is just, yeah, so <laughs> fun, punchy and really fascinating. So she was the reason Google Images was invented. Yeah, it's amazing. You, do you remember her iconic green dress at the Grammys? Who doesn't remember that iconic dress? <laughs> so, yeah, people were looking for it on the internet before Google Images was a thing oh. decades ago. She's the reason why Google Images was created. It's amazing. Wow. Imagine that being your claim to fame and you could put that on your resume. Reason Google Images was invented. That's, that's pretty good. Yeah, JLo's got a few things on her resume <laughs> that I would love to have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say no to any of it. And I wouldn't say no to the halftime show either, no. even if I had to share it. But <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. What have you got? Well, I've got a recommendation that is a bit less fun. Um, and it's definitely a bandwagon recommendation that I've stolen from some of my friends. It's called Recipe Tin Eats, which is a food blog. And it's run by this woman called Nagi. And her Instagram handle is at recipe underscore tin. And All of her recipes on there are super easy and they're super delicious. But what I like most about it is she breaks them down in really different ways. So if you're a bit of an old school recipe person, you can read the written recipe. There's a checklist so you can go to the grocery store and make sure you get everything. And the best part is there's like a little 30 second video if you're a visual learner and you just want to know what you're in for before you commit to a recipe. You can like play it and watch it and be like, yes, I can do everything on that video. Let's go. (laughs) That sounds good. A little, yeah, try before you buy situation. Yes, it is. Because often you start cooking and then you're like, I don't know how to make pastry. How did we get here? But there's none of that with this, which is great. And I'm going to try the chicken shawarma this weekend. Oh, yummy. Well, my second recommendation, this one's a bit dangerous because I'm only halfway through the book, but... um. (laughs) Oh my goodness, I'm going to recommend a book. I'm only halfway through too. Okay, well, it's Proceed been with caution, everyone. This one is Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the creator of Nike. It is so interesting. It just goes through the early years of how he created Nike, how he built the business, how he needed, um, it, was, it wasn't named Nike originally. It was just all the setbacks oh. and triumphs. It's just fascinating so far. I'm like flying through it. But yeah, as I said, only halfway through. 
It's been recommended wow. to me by a few people who have actually finished it. So you can trust <laughs> the recommendation of them. I am just, you know, the messenger, but it is really good <laughs> so far. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. All right. Well, my final one is also a book that I'm only halfway through. So, um, but this one comes recommended by Roxanne Gay, who we can also trust. It's called Detransition Baby and it's by Tori Peters. And it's a book about three women who are transgender and cisgender and all of their lives kind of collide in this really unexpected pregnancy. And then it goes on to explore what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a man, a mother and a father from a trans and queer perspective and also a cis perspective too. It's a very multi-layered book. And then I sneakily did some little... Google reviews before I recommended it on here and it looks like it's super polarizing but I'm really enjoying it. Oh that sounds so interesting. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of The Briefing. If you haven't already downloaded the listener app that is the best way to find us and make sure that you never miss an episode. Otherwise you can hit follow or subscribe from whichever podcast app you're listening to now. While you're there, why not leave the briefing a five-star review along with some kind words. It will absolutely make everyone's day. Tom Tilly and the rest of the briefing team will be back with you bright and early on Monday morning with the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Get well soon, Jamila, and stay safe, all of you. Listener.